Hello, I'm Mark O'Brien, and you're listening to Transformational Healthcare Leadership, a podcast series from Oxford University's Side Business School, a collection of interviews with leaders from across the globe exploring the five key themes of the school's healthcare leadership program, the personal leadership journey, understanding the evolving environment, effective strategy formation, driving innovation, and improving performance. The COVID-19 pandemic precipitated massive disruption in healthcare. So how have healthcare leaders responded to this challenge? What are they thinking? What personal journey are they on? How do they survey the changing landscape? What strategies have they tried or intend to try to ensure their team, their organisation, their country, not only survives, but thrives? In this episode, my colleague and the Academic Director of the Oxford Healthcare Leadership Program, Dr. Eleanor Murray, interviews Anya Palm Siebel and particularly explores the themes of innovation and understanding the evolving environment. Professor Anya Palm Siebel is an extraordinary leader. Aside from his clinical work as a paediatric gastroenterologist and hepatologist, he is also the Group Director of Medical Services for Apollo Healthcare India, as well as serving as the President of the Global Association of Physicians of Indian Origin. Eleanor began the interview by asking Anya Pam to give a short introduction to those not familiar with the extraordinary story of Apollo Healthcare, one of the most well-known healthcare organisations in Asia, with a particular focus on its origins and the breadth of its service delivery. So our journey really began in 1983 when our founder, our chairman, uh, Dr. Reddy, returned from the United States and decided to establish, which was then the first corporate hospital in India. It was a small hospital, 150 beds, opened in Chennai, which was known as Madras at that time. And uh, as he set up one hospital, he felt that there was need to expand uh, because in those days, for example, for coronary artery surgery, patients used, used to go abroad, they'd go to London or they'd go to the US. And he saw that uh, the outcomes were good, the doctors were capable, the, the environment was, was conducive to be able to deliver high quality care. And so he expanded to, to another hospital. And then, you know, it's been uh, a lot of growth since then. We now have 72 hospitals. Uh, we have more than 10,000 beds. Dr. Reddy then realized that it wasn't just about uh, about tertiary care or secondary care, but we also needed to look at primary care. So we established a network of primary clinics across the country. And because of our big problem with uh, with diabetes, we also set up a network called the sugar clinics. There was a huge shortage at that point in time of uh, skilled nurses uh, and uh, other technicians. So he embarked on setting up schools and colleges of nursing, and we have 11 of those. Uh, we train a lot of technicians. We have an institute of physiotherapy. There weren't that many trained healthcare managers, so he set up an institute of hospital administration. And then uh, to be able to provide training in residency and fellowship programs, we established what is the national board is what we have in India. So we have a training program wherein about 8.5% of all the trainees within the country at the national board train at Apollo in 45 specialties and super specialties like cardiac surgery, neurosurgery, and so on and so forth. There was also this issue about access to, to medication. 
So he ended up setting up a network of pharmacies and we now have more than 5,000 pharmacies. We also um, found that, you know, to be able to access uh, architects and design specialists uh, wasn't easy. So an architectural and a project division was set up. So it's really a story of identifying a need and then finding a solution. So at this point in time, we're an integrated healthcare delivery system with a strong presence in health IT, lots of work done in telemedicine, and of course, tertiary, quaternary care, primary care, secondary care, and you name it and every aspect of healthcare we have in some form or the other touched or have a presence in. And then uh, last few years, uh, we've been looking at digital health and we've been looking at how is it that we can reach the vast majority of Indians. So we established uh, an omni-channel platform, the largest in India called Apollo 24-7. And that provides medicines at doorstep. It sends in a phlebotomist to do sampling. Uh, we do a lot of digital consults, uh, clinical consults, psychology, dietetics, and of course, a lot of uh, advice, uh, even on home care. And we also have a division that looks at home care. So the spectrum is really wide. And uh, over the years, we've uh, had the privilege of uh, earning the trust of more than 200 million people from 140 countries who've traveled to India for treatment. It's an amazing growth story. And uh, it's a fantastic the way that the care has been integrated as part of that process. And a key theme I'd like to explore with you in our conversation is innovation. I'm well aware that many of the innovations in healthcare delivery and service accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic, such as telehealth, remote monitoring of seriously ill patients and low cost models of population health to service delivery had been business as usual at Apollo Healthcare for decades. Can I ask you to reflect on what you believe to be the organizational prerequisites for driving a strong culture of innovation? Well, I think it, it really boils down to need. So we have to realize that in India, there has always been the spirit of innovation. And let me give you an example um, from other sectors. And let's talk about space. The India began its space program you know, several decades ago. And people said, why is India investing in space when we have such larger issues? And the founders of the space program clearly saw that there were going to be a lot of spin-offs. And clearly we see them today. So India, for example, uh, launches satellites for 36 countries, including the United Kingdom and the United States. And um, I don't know if you saw the film Gravity. Uh, it cost $100 million to make. And India's Mars Orbiter mission, which was the first mission in the world to reach the orbit of Mars in its maiden attempt, cost $74 million. So it cost $26 million less than it cost to make the film Gravity. The point I'm trying to make here is that for us in India, frugal innovation has always been important. So there is a spirit of how is it that I can do more from that one pound or one dollar. And, and that is the reason why, you know, we, we've been able to, for example, we have become the third largest manufacturer of pharmaceuticals in the world. 50% of the world's vaccines are made in India. As many as 25% of all medicines in the UK are made in India. 40% of all the generics in the United States are made in India. So there's been this spirit of, of innovation and very importantly, frugal innovation. And that's exactly what we've done in, in uh, care delivery. For example, um, the cost of a liver transplant within the Apollo system is less than $35,000. And in the United States, it'll be close to $300,000. So you have comparable outcomes at one-tenth the price. And you'd ask me how, and that is because we've decided to sweat our assets. For example, our operation theaters really run 
start very early in the morning and run till very late. Our MRI is open 24-7, seven days a week. Our CT scans work 24-7, seven days a week. So we really look at how is it that we can optimize expensive equipment that we put in and, and really sweat that asset. Similarly, when we looked at large volumes of coronary artery bypass craft procedures, we looked at could we do beating heart surgeries? That brings the cost down. There are numerous examples. Now we're looking at daycare knee replacement when the patient comes in the morning and goes home at night. Daycare hip replacement to cut down on the average length of stay. Uh, the whole thing about, uh, you know, telemedicine has been that India is a very large country, you see. So patients would come from far and sometimes, you know, it can take two days by train to get to, say, Apollo Hospital in Chennai or Delhi. And they would come in and, and they would see a rheumatologist would slightly tweak the medication by looking at the rep reports. And well, why does a patient have to travel for that? And so the whole telemedicine program uh, evolved out of that. And Mr. Clinton had inaugurated our first telemedicine center. And we were doing well from, you know, telemedicine in the Himalayas at 12,500 feet in these villages where there is no healthcare. Being able to help families and save lives through cardioversion and through a lot of advice through telemedicine and have done that in rural areas. But I think it's the COVID pandemic that made everyone sit up and realize when you were stuck, it was just technology that was available. And, you know, let's face it, all, all of us were hesitant to do virtual meetings. We felt that face-to-face -face connection was, was essential. And it, it is very important and, and nobody's trying to take away from the value of that. But the bottom line is that we've, all of us have realized how to use our time more effectively and cut down on travel time. And so when it comes to telehealth, the advantage of a patient not having to come in. And in India, by the way, no one travels alone. So if I'm a pediatrician, so typically along with the child would be the parents and in all probability, the grandparents coming as well. So, you know, four people would travel with the child for a consult for 30 minutes and they would have spent money on travel, on stay, on food, loss of wages sometimes. And, and all that can be done away with through telemedicine. So uh, clearly... Um, Innovation has been driven by necessity in India because we've always uh, had value for how much can we derive out of that dollar a pound. Yes, thank you very much. I think the point you made about um, telemedicine is so critical in terms of giving that sort of cheap and easy access to medicine. And I'd like to look now at a particular area of innovation that I know Apollo has excelled in. And can I start with workforce strategy um, one of the biggest burning platforms driving service design innovation in nearly every country has been a shortage of workforce. And my colleague and co-presenter of this podcast series, Mark O'Brien, recently heard you speak at the International Hospital Federation Conference. And he told me of some of the staggering statistics you presented on the scale of this issue and the incredible response by India to this global problem. Could I ask you to share those insights with us? Uh, absolutely, Eleanor. I mean, India is a very young country. So, you know, if you look at uh, the population dynamics that we have, the demographic dividend is is very attractive. Uh, we, we have a population that has aspirations. We have a population that is determined to do well. We have a population that wants to study, that wants to work hard wants uh, to improve the quality of life of their folks back home, whether in the villages or small towns. And this whole enthusiasm and energy that, that we see is really very exciting. Now, if you look at the projections by 2030, you know, there's going to be a work 
health workforce shortage of more than 15 million professionals. Now, from 2020 to 2100, if we look at the next 80 years, India is going to have, there will be a time when we'll have um, more than 800 million people in the workforce, but consistently it'll be more than 750 million people in the workforce for the next 80 years. Everyone else in the world is going to have a deficit, including China. The advantage that you have in India is that, you know, English in many parts of the country is spoken and uh, Indians by and large are very comfortable uh, grasping the finer points of England, English. So, you know, you have the advantage of, of global mobility. And with this, this huge aspirational population, uh, we are going to be able to produce and deliver not just for India, but for the world, uh, close to a million healthcare professionals a year. Now, you'd say that's a staggering number. And let me break it down for you. In the last exam for high school students, you know, the, the passing out of school exam, 1.8 million students took the exam to try and qualify into an MBBS program. And we have 91,000 seats. So 5% of those who wanted to become a doctor actually get an MBBS seat. So you can just imagine how popular medicine is and that you have... 1.75 million people wanting or, or, or nearly 70 or 1.7 million young young uh, boys and girls wanting to get into just medicine. So similarly for nurses, for technicians, for radiographers, for OT techs, for dietitians, for physiotherapists, for psychologists, the opportunities in terms of training have really increased. We had 398 medical schools in 2014. We now have 647. We used to train 50,000 plus MBBS doctors. We now train 91,000, which is going to become 100,000 in the coming years. We used to train 30,000 postgrads. That's already upwards of 50,000. We'll become 60,000. And then the idea is really for the ratio to become one is to one. So MBBS equal to the postgraduate sort of seats. So we are going to produce a lot. And because we're going to be able to produce, not only will we be able to cater for the healthcare needs of India, which of course with 1.35 billion people are huge, but we will have enough for the aging global population. So we will have a situation where the young Indian can help heal the aging global population. If you look at Japan, I mean, you know, look at the number of people above the age of 80. Who's going to look after them? They don't have the growth rate. So they're going to have to depend on people from other countries to come in. And we are seeing that in Europe. We're seeing that in the United States. If you look at the shortage of nurses in most parts of the developed world, it's huge. And the same is going to apply also to doctors. And as nurses retire, and you're not going to have enough young nurses to come in and fill in the gap. India is going to be able to provide the solution. Now you might say, listen, what is this? You know, is this going to work out? And let me give you an example of how this has worked out in other industries. And let me give you an example from software. I think everybody is very familiar with India's role in, in the software industry in the world. In 1991, when the whole software revolution started in India, the revenue generated by Indian software was $0.5 million. You know what it was last year? 
227 billion dollars that's huge of the top 6 it companies in the world three are headed by indian origin professionals so in the world that we live in the world that's flat the world where boundaries don't really matter you know the mobility is going to have to increase people are going to travel across countries and i think india with with our young population that is eager to do well uh, india is very well positioned to be able to fill this huge human resource gap that we are going to see in healthcare and it's going to be seen in the next 5 to 7 years it's not 20 years on Yes, as incredible impact. And following on from that incredible story, you highlighted the innovative approach to education delivery at Apollo. Can you talk about that including the establishment of Medvarsity and how it contributes to this story of mass workforce training? Yeah, so you know, you need the brick and mortar training. So, you know, we have two medical schools, we have 11 schools and colleges of nursing. You know, we we made a, a foray into the United Kingdom as well in in medical education. So what we've decided is that you know while we have all of the physical stuff and we will build on it we have the Apollo University coming up we also need to use technology for upskilling so we developed Medvarsity as really our online learning platform and Medvarsity has about 250 programs and they have um, trained doctors healthcare professionals in in I think more than 170 countries and when covid struck there was this huge issue with training for ventilatory care and and you would remember those days when you know patients were getting really sick and there was this thing about okay are they even trained to manage a ventilator okay the engineering guys are smart they'll give us the ventilator but how are you going to actually train people so they created a program and ended up training i think more than 118000 healthcare professionals in just ventilation and then there were other protocols that were developed for for a variety of training programs at medvasti we have a nice hybrid model with some amount of physical training a fair amount of online and i think uh, the the potential for this to grow is huge because i think all of us are getting more and more comfortable with getting a lot of knowledge uh, without actually getting into a classroom and and for us in in medicine you know um, the number of publications that come out each day i mean by the time eleanor you and i finish this conversation there'll be about 30 or peer reviewed journals that would have appeared on pubmed so you know we need to find smart ways of of being able to get the best of information that applies to me as a clinician uh, in my practice and i think technology is going to play a central role and you know we 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 will go through all those concepts and then somebody will walk us through what is really important and again the online platform delivery system i think is critical to be able to help healthcare professionals across the world yes and turning to innovation at the point of care i know apollo has been very concerned about the access to adequate healthcare for people living in poverty in india particularly those in rural and remote parts of the country could you talk about how apollo has used innovation to mobilize resources within the country to address the healthcare of those most in need so i think eleanor let me address this at two levels one is because india has um, a healthcare delivery system is very different to what you have in the united kingdom of course united kingdom with nhs and government spending like really contributing 80% 20% being private in india about nearly 70% of healthcare is private so let me just look at the private sector and and the public sector so if you look at the government uh, the government has launched a very ambitious program they launched it a couple of years called uh, pmj 
And basically what un, under this program, what they've done is they've decided that they're going to give health insurance to 500 million people. Let me say that again. 500 million people. They've already provided cards to 220 million people. And so in the next year or so, all 500 million will be covered under this insurance program, which covers a fair bit of treatment. And uh, it's 500,000 rupees, which covers for, for most of the needs of a family. They also have invested a fair amount of money in infrastructure by developing an infrastructure program to you know, set up more labs, more ICU beds and so on. Also a, a program in terms of creating 150,000 wellness centers. So where primary care is not delivered. So these have become operational. And the fourth is the whole digital health piece where uh, there is a digital health mission. So health records, healthcare provider details, healthcare professionals registry, all digital. So you move from one provider to another, you move from one city, one state to another, your record moves with you. So the government has worked very hard uh, over the last few years in developing this program in terms of reaching out to everyone. Just to give you one example of telemedicine again, and, and you know, these numbers are just so large in that they have a program called e-Sanjeevni that, you know, is just seeing such large number of consults. I think there are more than 70 million consults teleconsults have happened just through this program, which is 100% free. So the government has invited the private sector to come in and participate. So the participation varies in, in that you take over the management of a hospital in conjunction with the government. You take up a medical college and set it up with the government. So we our medical college in, in, in South India and in Chitur is a public-private partnership with the government. In the mission to eradicate tuberculosis, there are opportunities of working with the government in terms of child health, maternal health, vaccination. There are tremendous opportunities. There is also an e-pharmacy platform. There's an e-ophthalmology program that we've partnered with the government where our team goes in and uh, with the individuals not having to leave their villages, their eyes get tested and their spectacles are delivered at home within 72 hours without them stepping out of their village. The telemedicine program that I mentioned to you in the Himalayas where healthcare is, is really hard because, you know, they're snowbound and cut off from the rest of the country. And then we have this very special project which we refer to as Total Health. Uh, so what we've done is we've adopted 70,000 people in several villages in South India, starting with a village called Aragonda where Dr. Reddy was, was our founder, was born. So we look after families from birth till their grave. So this means prevention, care. And let me give you a couple of examples. For example, we found that uh, there was an opportunity for giving supplementary feeding to uh, pregnant ladies. And with the supplementary nutrition that we did give to them, the birth weight of the babies born in this cohort was higher than the ones historically. Similarly, giving nutrition to lactating mothers. Vaccination for children treatment also bringing in alternative systems of medicine because you know there's a lot of belief in Ayurveda, which is a traditional indian system yoga we then also found that you know the, we need to do something in terms of the economic upliftment of the community so we taught skills to men 
And then we discover that while the women were most receptive in taking home advice, nobody really took them very seriously because they weren't really earning very much. So we decided to develop a program for women's empowerment where we taught them skills in terms of um, manufacturing of, of clothes, jute bags, you know. So they were guaranteed income every month. So all those jute bags are bought by Apollo hospitals and all our MRIs and CT scan reports go through those bags. And we found that the moment these women were empowered and they were guaranteed income, everybody took their advice at home very seriously. So you want to change behavior, empower women and make sure they take home money and then suddenly things will change. That's very interesting, isn't it? It creates that economic driver for engaging with people and your voice is taken very seriously mm. we also set up a, a school uh, with the isha foundation uh, Sadhguru jaggi vasudev who's is very respected spiritual leader so if you go to that school in the village every child has an ipad and they speak fluent english because they are being created i mean their education is going to make sure that they can get jobs anywhere in the world we have a nursing school where all the the 60 nurses who graduate get employment Apollo, at Apollo Hospital. Uh, so this this program has been written as a case study at uh, the Harvard School of Public Health. So our commitment to public health, our commitment to holistic healthcare is our total health project. And, and we believe that this is a model that's replicable, that's scalable, and definitely can be uh, developed in other parts of the country. Yes, that's, that's really inspirational as a model. And... At the other end of the spectrum, I know that Apollo Healthcare provides some of the most cutting-edge technological solutions available to patients in India. Can you talk about the service and implementation innovations that you've undertaken as a group to ensure that the quality of the non-technical aspects of healthcare delivery match the advanced technology you acquired in your hospital? So as we know, technology is changing at a rapid pace. You know, what you buy today in terms of equipment won't really work five years down the road. And, and there's a huge investment that you have to make in, whether it's in radiation therapy or in robotics or other more sophisticated equipment. Like we bought the first proton therapy unit for South Asia, which got commissioned about three years ago. So while we make huge investments in technology, and work towards upskilling our, our clinicians, uh, you know, technical skills, we have to realize that you can become high tech, but you must remain high touch. And that touch is extremely important. And therefore, we had uh, this program at Apollo, which, which was launched several years ago, called Tender Loving Care, TLC. So the staff is encouraged to see in every shift how many TLC moments can they create? And it could be a little thing like just sitting down with someone and, and chatting with them, you know, to just talk about life when they are stuck in hospital for weeks or to get their favorite food or to uh, for those who are not, techno uh, you know, very tech savvy to connect with their children or grandchildren on, on WhatsApp. So, for example, we celebrate any patient's birthday with a cake we connect with the family, anyone's anniversary, that's that's a big celebration. We have a fond farewell when they go home. So the idea is really for the entire care, caregiving team to become a part 
of that process and 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 you know offer more than just care while we have measures for outcome measures like apollo clinical excellence which which again has been written up as case studies where we measure outcomes to compare them with the best published outcomes anywhere in the world and do that every month and it goes to our board and in fact the remuneration of the ceo is linked to that not just the medical director so we focus a lot on clinical outcomes but the soft stuff is very very important so we actually came out with a book uh, which is the smiles behind the mask and this was conceived during covid so that's why behind the mask where we talk about where people had gone beyond the call of duty for example uh, one of our managers who was looking after french tourist who was stuck and who could barely speak english trying to communicate with this patient because he spoke english and you know build a bridge because he was all alone in in um, in, in india he was here on a tour or, or for its uh, going out of the way to to facilitate uh, someone whose uh, son was getting married and 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 really he was terminal and wasn't going to be able to attend so to virtually create a mini icu at the wedding venue take the doctors the nurses the technicians the oxygen and everything so that he could witness the wedding it's very very touching uh, stories um, of 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 that nature and very soon we'll be la- launching a program on kindness and how can we be kind to each other how can we be kind to our colleagues how can we be kind to patients to relatives to everyone we come in contact with so this is really an extension of the lc with the kindness program because we we believe that it's very very important uh, to connect with patients and and uh, offer more than just 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 the care that technology and expertise provides but they must feel that we care for them we genuinely care for them and they must feel it thank you and i know you've traveled the world extensively and are familiar with many healthcare systems can i ask you to reflect on your experience and pass on any lessons you feel other systems and countries could learn from the way in which apollo has embraced, embraced innovation well i i don't think um, it would be appropriate to offer any suggestions how someone can um, sort of improve their system because you know every system has their leaders and and their wise people who know the best but i think what we have learned is that we've been very open to ideas and uh, we have consistently believed in doing whatever is the best for the patient and if it meant you know raising money to get the best technology if it meant uh, traveling the world to get the best doctors back to india because there was a time when indian doctors used to go to to britain and and the united states in large numbers every year so we used to have this brain drain so we we started the process of reversing the brain drain by getting doctors back from the west to spend time there and it has all been about what is it that we can do for the patient so that it's absolutely world class and i think uh, every endeavor has been about what can we do to make the patient journey more more comfortable uh, to improve the outcomes and forever being mindful of the fact that you know we we need to provide tender loving care but i think one suggestion that i have is that you know it doesn't always take huge amounts of money to be able to innovate and i think uh, india has many examples of frugal innovation so i think that's something that most healthcare leaders could could keep in mind because sometimes uh, the cost of a project is just daunting and then the project gets shelved but maybe there is a way to get around the the financial impediment by having an open mind and, and and looking at examples elsewhere so that would be one suggestion that i'd like to offer 
Thank you. And finally, we ask all the contributors to this podcast series the same two questions at the end of each interview. And so the first is, what possibility in the healthcare ecosystem excites you most as you gaze into your crystal ball for the next 10 years? Well, Eleanor, I think the first thing is we're going to move from healthcare to health. I think there's a big difference because we've been so focused on curative care. We've been so focused on treatment in facilities that we've lost out to the, the fact that a lot can happen at home uh, about well-being, about not just the physical well-being, but the mental well-being, because we, we can see all around the stress that we, we see people under and the impact that has on, on their physical being. So I think we'll start looking at health more holistically. We'll move from healthcare to health. We will move from treatment and diagnosis to prevention, to primary prevention, to secondary prevention. And I think this whole idea of what is it that we can do at a very young age for some of these children to protect them. And I think genomics is going to play a very important role uh, in the years to come because it's definitely going to help us improve our understanding in, in many diseases. It's going to change things in terms of therapeutics. We're already seeing that. Good 10 cancers, the, the therapy is not determined by uh, genomics. So we're going to see a lot of that. I think hospitalization is going to be limited for work that cannot be done on a daycare sort of ambulatory uh, manner. Uh, I think we will all end up uh, using more and more technology, which is minimally invasive. So what can be done endoscopically will be done endoscopically what can be done robotically will be done robotically the average length of stay will come down which will also mean that we will not need to have 2000 bedded hospitals and 1000 bedded hospitals we, we would perhaps need smaller hospitals that will be run more efficiently we will perhaps learn uh, how to decrease the length of, of stay uh, and, and bring down costs and I think uh, it's going to be very exciting it's going to involve a fair amount of, of thinking, ideation, re-engineering, re-imagining, uh, and very importantly, having the conviction to follow through on some of those ideas. Yes. And as a leader yourself, what's the one piece of advice you would have given your 25 years younger self about becoming a powerful leader? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a fascinating question, Eleanor. And when I look back, well, one thing is for certain that I would have started myself on the journey to become the best version of who I think I can become at a much earlier age by taking baby steps. So just, just a step a day, a couple of steps every day, nothing monumental because it's about consistency. It's about doing something in, in trying to become a better person, 365 days. And when you look at that over a 10 year period, that that's huge. So um, I think I would start with, uh, I would have started with my daily affirmations a bit earlier and I have 20 of them that I repeat every morning and I would have started that a few years earlier and this goes from humility to not criticizing people because it doesn't get you anywhere, being a little more generous and, and, and lavish with compliments because that really can open a lot of doors in being uh, kind because everyone out there is fighting a battle and we don't really know in not being judgmental because one is imperfect, in not doing anything that you would be embarrassed of five years down the road, having an open mind to listening to other ideas, to soak in conversations, to, to really have an open mind, to um, very importantly, what you think, what you say and what you and how you act needs to be in consonance. And that is very, very important for mental peace. 
to uh, forgive and forget it's extremely important we sometimes forgive but we don't forget to be a dreamer because at the end of the day what are dreams they are goals with deadlines and very importantly realize the power of gratitude the problem is that we take things for granted so sometimes we don't recognize gratitude and, and i read it in in, in a book by uh, shri gaur gopal das where he talks about recognize gratitude record gratitude and reciprocate gratitude and i think there are three steps so sometimes we just do one and if we reciprocate it i think then there's greater value to that and of course um, you know in this journey of, of life we must have those micro moments of mindfulness where you just stop and if you're having that coffee for one minute it's just the coffee bean the aroma and you and nothing else to do more of that and very importantly the things that we don't like we push back and that itself leads to a lot of stress so don't grasp don't push back just let it be because at the end of the day there is a higher power that that is going to handle things that we think we we, we believe we can handle but we can't really handle so it's 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 really about a, a graceful positive surrender to the to the higher being I think that's enormously uh, powerful and wise advice actually that all of us could uh, do well with adopting so thank you for sharing that with us I appreciate that and I know that you've got a personal and professional interest in leadership and to that end you've written a book is your child ready to face the world can you explain the inspiration for writing the book you know um in india we've had this traditional uh, very strong concept of the family you know a lot of respect for parents and grandparents and uh, you know i was sitting in clinic one day and uh, this teenage girl was having an argument with her father i could see his eyes watering and i and i said you know the way the conversation went and and, and the way the whole dynamics between the the father and the daughter got me thinking that you know society had changed perhaps the old school of parenting that that a lot of parents that is the only school they know how they were raised doesn't work with the next generation because this generation asks it questions it debates not going to take anything on face value just because you said so doesn't mean anything because uh, you know quite often in fact if you say so then it's not really going to be accepted at all because you're saying this as a parent so uh, so it got me thinking and and, and then i you know started writing this book it's called is your child ready to face the world and it's really about communicating with children how is it that you can get to develop a, a relationship with with your child and and, and of course uh, it it talks about uh, our experiments for want of a better term with our son and how we communicated with him and what worked and what didn't work and and it's full of life lessons uh, from different parts of the world uh, well known people not so well known people in what one could learn from them and it really talks about uh, providing your child with an atmosphere where your child is free to communicate with you because quite often a child will get advice from their best friend's sister or brother who will have all but two more years of experience than them and that person will be their guru for everything in life and the reason why they gravitate to someone like that is because they believe they can't really have an open communication channel with their parent because the parents going to be judgmental you know it's like when you are running uh, learning to ride a cycle you fall 
and and nobody thinks about it yes you're going to fall and that's how you're going to learn how to ride a cycle but but if a child comes in and says something that i did this wrong quite often the parent will be judgmental and that's when the bridge will be burnt where the child will never come back to you because they believe that my parents going to be judgmental about it so it, it really talks about how to develop a healthy relationship and in in a very subtle manner talk about some values some virtues that every parent believes are important for the well-being of the child and would be very important for the future of the child to keep the child happy but you you can't really say listen in my experience well that's it you can't really say you might want to follow this because they don't listen to that so you know it's um, how you communicate what do you say what what choice of words and so it's it's full of stories on how one can communicate with with children to help them uh, prepare them for facing the challenges that they will invariably face and parents will not be around to help them with those challenges but what is it that you can do in the first few years of life to help them become strong uh, individuals who can face some of the challenges that will come their way Yeah I think for all of us who are parents that resonates really powerfully you know the struggles and the challenges you face on the journey of parenthood so that sounds a fascinating read and I think it's going to be my next book that I'll be looking to uh, to pick up so thank you very much for that Professor Sibyl it's been fascinating hearing your thoughts and reflections and thanks so much for generously giving your time Thank you so much it's been an absolute uh, privilege You have been listening to Transformational Healthcare Leadership, a podcast from Oxford University's Side Business School, where we speak to outstanding healthcare leaders from across the globe who share their insights on healthcare leadership as we navigate the complexity of modern healthcare delivery. And for those interested in furthering their healthcare leadership journey, by joining us at Oxford for the executive education offering that I and my colleague Elena Murray have the privilege of leading at Side Business School. You can find details about the Oxford Healthcare Leadership Program in our show notes. We'd love to see you at Oxford. Transformational Healthcare Leadership is produced by Chris Ashmore Media, and if you enjoyed listening, please subscribe to hear further episodes and tell your friends. Thanks for listening.